pray. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for your word. We thank you for your word, the Bible. We thank you that in the Bible you reveal the truth about yourself to us. You tell us all we need to know for life and salvation. You teach us how to live as your people. We pray that as we consider these words this morning, you would help us to understand them and help us to see how we can be growing as followers of Jesus. We pray all this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder, how do you cope with unmet expectations? Have you ever had high expectations of something and experienced the disappointment when you found that the reality was far from what you expected, what you hoped? Uh, I organised the bachelor party uh, for a friend of mine uh, some years ago now. I booked a table at a Turkish restaurant because my, my friend and I, we both liked Turkish food and this place had a reputation as the best Turkish restaurant in Brisbane. Uh, we pre-ordered the Turkish banquet. The promise was of a sumptuous meal with more than enough food to satisfy eight hungry men. The reality didn't quite meet expectations. Uh, it was a modest three-course meal with you know, plates of different items to share. Very tasty, but not exactly banquet proportions. Uh, portions. <laughs> and the promised extra servings didn't arrive when requested. Uh, the belly dancer... It was just a little bit annoying, actually, and too bawdy for the kind of bachelor party we had planned. Uh, it was obvious, as I looked around the table with the guys at the party there, uh, that the whole experience was below expectation uh, for my best friend and his mates. And look, I felt pretty bra- bad about that at the time. I still like Turkish food and Turkish restaurants, but on this occasion, uh, didn't meet expectations, and that was disappointing. That's how life is so often, isn't it? That's how life goes. A lot of the time, if you're human, you have experienced the pain, the disappointment, the frustration of unmet expectations. Uh, All the way from uh, the first coffee of the day uh, to the latest new release movie. Uh, All the way from the the new job that you thought was going to be so great to uh, the, the friend who sadly let you down again. Uh, in marriage, in parenting, in family relationships, uh, our expectations can so often be dashed and that can lead to doubt and disappointment. In these early days of Jesus' ministry, there seems to be some doubt about Jesus, some people who are experiencing potentially unmet expectations. Uh, Jesus has arrived as the promised Messiah the king of God's heavenly kingdom. He's been preaching the kingdom, calling people to follow him. Uh, And he does so here again at the end of chapter 11. Uh, I'll read verses 28 to 30 again. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Incredibly encouraging words, a great promise of of comfort and rest from the Messiah. Uh, But is Jesus delivering? Is is he the one John was sent to prepare the way for? After all, there are some doubts. One person we might think would be in no doubt of Jesus' identity uh, is is John the Baptist. 
And yet, as we'll see, uh, he's the one asking the question. Are you the man we were waiting for? Uh, We would hardly expect him to have doubts, though. He's the one who came to prepare the way for Jesus. Back in Matthew chapter 3, he says this about Jesus. I baptise you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The next thing we're told is that Jesus is there being baptised and we have that great moment of confirmation. Uh, The Spirit of God descending and the voice from heaven, this is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. In the Gospel of John, it's John the Baptist who saw the Spirit descending on Jesus and was told by God, the one on whom the Spirit descends is the one you're waiting for. John calls Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If anyone can be sure of Jesus' identity, surely surely it's John the Baptist. And yet here in Matthew 11, there's some doubt. Uh, It's John who asks the question through his disciples, verse 2, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Are you the one, Jesus? (laughs) Who are you really? Are you the Messiah or not? Uh, Why is John doubting? Well, it seems to be a case of unmet expectations. John's possibly, uh, at this stage in Jesus' ministry, John's possibly been in in jail for up to a year by, by this time. And he's got expectations of the Messiah like everyone else. Uh, in the back of John's mind, like for many Jews at the time, is, is the question of what the Messiah will do and when he will do it. Well, maybe John is thinking, isn't the Messiah meant to come in judgment? Why aren't my jailers being judged for my false imprisonment? Well, when do the Jews get set free from their oppressive Roman rulers? Because well, that's part of the Messiah's job, isn't it? To set us free. When does the threshing floor get cleared and the shaft get burned up? Maybe, as, as it was for many people at the time, maybe John feels his expectations of the Messiah are not being met and, and it creates some doubt. For him, he has to ask the question. Well, Jesus answers John's question uh, to clear away any doubt. John, John's heard of, of what Jesus is doing and, and yes, these are indeed the actions of the Messiah. Uh, verses 4 to 6, Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Jesus is referring to Isaiah chapters 35 and 61 there, among other passages, uh, where we see the Messiah's role described. Isaiah 35 verses 4 to 5, Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Uh, And Isaiah chapter 61. This is the passage Jesus himself reads uh, in the synagogue. Isaiah 61 from verse 1. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. 
and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. So John and all the people are are seeing Jesus do many of the things the Messiah was come to do. Sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf, proclaiming good news to the poor. Uh, Jesus says, yes, I'm the one if if my actions mean anything to you. Uh, But in verses 4 to 6 here in in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus doesn't mention some of those things that are mentioned in the Isaiah passages. Uh, He doesn't mention anything about the vengeance and retribution, the freedom for the captives and release for prisoners. And it seems like this is the reason for John's question. But it's not for John uh, or any man to de- decide exactly when or how each part of the Messiah's mission will be completed. There is judgment on God's enemies through the Messiah, uh, and, and we'll come to that in just a few verses. For now, Jesus says, don't stumble on account of me. As you see what I'm doing, don't find obstacles to trip over. See my actions and believe that I am the Messiah. And Jesus uses John's own reputation as he's speaking to the crowd. Jesus used John's reputation to back up his identity. He uses the people's perception, their understanding of John to affirm the correct perception of himself. Uh, John may have put the question to Jesus here, but uh, John is no reed swaying in the wind. He's no finely dressed king, like King Herod, who locked him up. Uh, John is exactly who the people know him to be, a prophet, the one who will, as it says in Malachi 3, verse 1, prepare the way for the Lord. Those words of John uh, were true. His early confirmation of Jesus as the one sent by God was true, which all means that Jesus is the Messiah. And now Jesus is demonstrating He's demonstrating that by his words and actions. Don't doubt it, says Jesus. And as sure as John should have been, well, we can be even more sure, Jesus says. John is great among prophets and among men, uh, but as disciples of Jesus, uh, we are greater than John the Baptist. Uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 11. Follow along there with me. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven, potentially confusing statement from Jesus, what does he mean? Well, uh, John living before the great miracles and the preaching of Jesus, uh, as he came to prepare for the arrival of the Messiah, he, even then he couldn't point to Jesus as clearly as we can. Uh, John himself was prophesied to come and prepare the way for the Messiah, and his prophecy was true. But after Jesus arrives, everyone has access to the great miracles and preaching of Jesus, access to Jesus' own self-revelation in his words and deeds. That means that we can point to Jesus as the Messiah with even greater certainty than John. We have Jesus' own words and actions to point to as witnesses. Or as people today who read the first-hand accounts of these things and experience Jesus' work in our own lives by his Spirit. In that sense, Jesus says, even the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. 
So Jesus is answering John's question in no uncertain terms. Look at my deeds, hear my words. Uh, He tells the crowd, John, yes, was the prophet you came out to see. He was preparing the way for the Messiah. And that Messiah is me. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Don't doubt, just believe. Now, of course, sometimes that's easier said than done. Uh, We are prone to doubt as humans, uh, and it's especially hard when we feel we have unmet expectations. Uh, Do you struggle with doubting Jesus at times? And could it be at least partly due to wrong expectations? Uh, I remember talking to a friend one time who uh, has a mental illness, Uh, He's a young man, had been suffering from depression for years, and and he was saying that when he was first diagnosed uh, in those early days, he he was just expecting his depression to get better one day, to to stop and and get better, like a a cut finger or a headache. And and he got angry at God at times, got a bit disillusioned, uh, because he's a Christian, and shouldn't his faith in Jesus count for something there? As uh, this friend of mine has matured, he says he's, he's come to a different view of his illness and a different view of Jesus. He has expectations of Jesus and what he does in our lives that are far more realistic now, far more biblical. What do you expect Jesus to do for you? And could that be leading you to doubt him or doubt your faith? What expectations have you had of Jesus over the years Uh, Did you expect Jesus to get you through school or uni with great grades? Uh, Or do you expect him to find you the perfect parking spot? Do you expect Jesus to find someone wonderful for you to marry or, or to give you the perfect family? Do you expect him to get your chosen political candidate into parliament? Do you expect him to make your business succeed, give you a great job? Do you expect Jesus to fix your troubled marriage or to heal your cancer or cure your depression? Is Jesus' purpose to bring you that kind of comfort and rest? He surely has the power to do all those things. But are they right expectations to have? Is is this the, the rest he's promising us? In Wrong expectations lead to doubt and disappointment. Wrong expectations will be unmet. If we're wondering about Jesus' identity and his role in our life, well, we need to have right and realistic expectations. What it is he promises and what he will do. Now, certainly many people at the time had wrong expectations of Jesus. He didn't meet their needs or their wants. Didn't do what he, they expected him to do, and so they wrote him off. Many people Refuse to come to Jesus as he called them to. Jesus says, this is the reaction some people have to both John and to himself because they didn't meet expectations. Verses 18 and 19. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they said, he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they said, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. The problem is, if you have the wrong expectations or if you willfully ignore the evidence and reject Jesus, it will turn out uh, very badly for you. Because Jesus is the Messiah, he will bring the judgment and retribution of the Messiah. 
uh, that judgment John the Baptist is sitting in his prison cell waiting for, uh, that judgment is coming. Not right here and right now, but at a future time. And Jesus gives the strongest possible warning to those who reject him. They will face ju that judgment. Uh, from verse 20, Jesus rebukes and denounces a number of towns where he's performed miracles and healing, and yet people haven't repented. Uh, even the town he's currently calling home, Capernaum. Uh, have a read from verse 23. Verse 23 and 24. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. The judgment these towns face, the judgment faced because of uh, rejection of Jesus, will be far greater than these openly pagan cities that are so famous in Israelite history. Because these towns, they have the Messiah in their midst. They have Jesus there in, in the flesh, but they reject him. Jesus has been preaching and performing miracles, demonstrating the power of God, showing who he is, doing things that people have never seen before. And yet many still reject him. The tone of this chapter and the, and the chapter before it, when the, the 12 apostles sent out, uh, chapter, chapter 10, when, when Jesus sends out the 12 apostles, the, there's a tone of, uh, a note of opposition in these chapters. We, we see that, yes, there will be opposition to uh, the message of the kingdom of heaven, heaven, opposition to the gospel. And here, from the very people who are meant to welcome the Messiah as their own, no wonder Jesus said, Back in chapter 7, small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few will find it. That seems to be true for so many in these early days of Jesus' ministry, that to Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, so we see here the, the preaching of the kingdom performing, it's performing partly a judging role. The gospel will either save or condemn. If you accept it, you are saved. But if you reject it, you will be judged. And this is the work the Messiah came to do a work which God has had in plan for centuries. How will God respond to those who reject him, to those who shepherd his people so badly? Um, Isaiah 35, which we read earlier, he will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. That's why Jesus says in verses 25 and 26, at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. Jesus' actions are all in part of God's plan. He's fulfilling his role as a Messiah, fulfilling God's plan to his people, God is exercising both salvation and, and his righteous judgment. As he hides these things from some and, as Jesus says, reveals them to others. And God's choice in, in hiding and revealing it doesn't make him unfair and it doesn't take away a person's guilt or responsibility for their own sin either. It doesn't make God guilty of the sin, even though many people think it does. There is a tension here that many Christians today find hard to accept. 
But when Jesus talks about the towns that refuse to repent, he makes it clear that they are responsible for their rejection of the Messiah. When you have God's chosen saviour in your midst, the one you've been reading about in your synagogues for centuries, and when you see the miracles and hear the preaching, the proof of his identity, you, you surely have only yourself to blame if you reject it, if you ignore it. It's like getting caught speeding and the police pull you over and show you the number on the radar gun and then will you start arguing with the police despite the evidence in front of you. If you have the evidence in front of you and you, you reject it, you, you really have only yourself to blame. And if you have the Messiah in front of you, all the proof you need, and yet you reject him, you're responsible for the judgment God brings. I think this says something about the Western post-Christian society that we live in today. Uh, nations like uh, Australia, England, the US, Western Europe uh, all share a Christian heritage. Uh, we've grown up over centuries with an undeniable Christian influence. We've had and still have unparalleled access to the Bible, uh, laws based on Christian moral principles, Christmas and Easter are our most pub, uh, popular holidays. There are churches in every town and suburb. Now, I'm not saying that the church has always had a good or strong Christian influence, but Christianity has been there to investigate and accept for anyone who, who wanted to, both overtly and also just infused as part of the culture. And slowly but surely, over the decades, over the centuries, we've sidelined, ignored, perverted and rejected the Christian faith. This has been done by those outside and by those inside the church. To the point where today we, we are decidedly uh, post-Christian. The church is slowly dying in the West. Could this be the judgment part of the gospel message being exercised? Uh, and can people blame anyone but themselves for it? In the end, that's why the final words of Jesus in this chapter are so welcome. Uh, there's a great peril in rejecting Jesus. But there's great comfort. There is rest for those who come to him. Uh, let's read those last few verses again from verse 27. Follow along with me there. Verse 27. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light." In his goodness and mercy, the Son rests for all who come to him. It's important to see there the authority invested in Jesus by the Father. There's this reciprocity and mutual working between the Father and the Son. Jesus has the same knowledge and authority as the Father. Uh, now that statement would have enraged the Pharisees. It's a claim to divinity, even if Jesus doesn't use those exact words. And, and to those looking for some relief from their pharisaical leaders, those waiting for God himself to come and lead and guide them, 
His words would have given immense relief, confidence. Finally, the yoke of oppression the people have been wearing will be taken off and they'll be given the yoke of a loving, gracious master. Jesus is again pointing to his role in fulfilling God's plans for his people. He doesn't directly quote any Old Testament prophet here in verses 28 and 29, but the yoke imagery be familiar to Old Testament ears. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 34, uh, that chapter that starts with the indictment against the shepherds of Israel who lead the people astray and oppress them for their own, own gain. Uh, that passage goes on to say that God himself will come to shepherd his people and he'll break their yoke of slavery. Have a look at Ezekiel 34, verse 27. The trees will yield their fruit and the ground will yield its crops. The people will be secure in their land. They will know that I am the Lord when I break the bars of their yoke and rescue them from the hands of those who enslave them. Now the people in Jesus' day were under the yoke of the Romans, uh, but they were also, perhaps more importantly, under the yoke of the Pharisees. The leaders of the people had them bound to the law, and the yoke of the law was a yoke that led to death especially as the Pharisees ignored the spirit of the law and simply added rule after rule until anyone would despair of ever succeeding it, ever succeeding under it. Remember, the law exists not to save, but to highlight sin and point us to our need for Jesus. That's why Jesus says in, uh, back in chapter 5 to 7 that he is the fulfillment of the law. We saw there Jesus perfectly obeys God where we never can. And so following him gives us freedom from the law, freedom from the consequences of sin. And this isn't simply a freedom and release to go and live life however we want. Well, God's people are offered the yoke of discipleship to Jesus. In the end, this this is a yoke that is no yoke at all because the hard work of saving our souls is done by Jesus. That's what he's offering, salvation of our souls, rest for your soul. It's the yoke of a loving master who will guide his people into an eternal rest. Jesus' description of, where is it, verse 29? Jesus' description of himself in verse 29 uh, as humble and gentle and humble in heart. This is unique in, in, in the way Jesus talks of himself. This is the only time in the Gospels where Jesus speaks of himself in this way, where he describes his, his own heart. He talks about who he is in his very being. Gentle and humble of heart, he says. And the word Jesus uses there when he says he is gentle of heart uh, it's used only two other times in Matthew's Gospel. The first time's in the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The word meek there is the same as the word uh, gentle that Jesus uses to describe his own heart. Jesus is meek or gentle, and yet he is powerful enough to provide rest for our souls. Why will the meek inherit the earth? Because they follow this one who is meek, who is gentle of heart, who conquers sin and death and will one day return as judge of all the earth. Jesus is humble and gentle. He puts the needs of others first and uses his strength 
to save them. Now, the third use of the word gentle in Matthew is in chapter 21, verse 5. This is Jesus entering Jerusalem shortly before his crucifixion. Matthew 21, verse 5, Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt the foal of a donkey. Here is Jesus entering Jerusalem as king, gentle and riding in, on a donkey, entering in gentleness and, and humility, ready to serve his people by dying to save them from their sins. And disciples of Jesus, members of the kingdom of heaven, will share in his kingdom and find rest for their souls because he is gentle and humble, willing to serve, willing to save. This passage helps us to avoid the pain of unmet expectations. It shows us what we can rightly expect from Jesus. The rest Jesus offers isn't necessarily a restful, comfortable life here and now. Uh, it isn't necessarily healing from illness. It's not necessarily uh, wealth or comfort or untroubled living. But it is a life of service to a loving master who gives freely of himself to provide an eternal peace and rest to his followers. A yoke still means work, still means submission to a master. Uh, back in chapter 10, Jesus says we must take up our cross and follow him. We have to be willing to give up our own lives for the sake of the life he offers. But what an exchange. What an exchange to swap the yoke that leads to death for the yoke that leads to eternal rest. There's a rest for our souls in eternity and a rest for our souls now because we can know that our sin is forgiven and our destiny is assured, despite the, the many difficulties and hardships of life here and now. I mentioned earlier my friend who uh, suffers from depression and who was disillusioned at first with God when, when his illness didn't go away. Well, after some years of struggle, years of maturing as a disciple of Jesus, uh, this friend of mine came to the stage where he could say that he has found rest. Not, not that he doesn't still struggle with his illness, of course he does. Uh, not that he doesn't still doubt at times, he does. But he can see the way that hardships help us grow. The hard work of following Jesus actually strengthens and matures us as Christians. And all the time... You have the comfort of knowing that your master is leading you in the right direction. There is a rest waiting for you, an eternal rest. We can have rest even now during the hard times in life because we know Jesus is leading us to an eternal rest. We know the hard work we do for him now is not in vain. If you need that comfort... If you need to look forward to that rest, and we all do, uh, please be comforted here by Jesus' words. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, can I simply urge you to listen to Jesus' words here and come to him? The rest he offers will mean there's no punishment for sin to be faced. He's taken that punishment on your behalf when you trust in him. 
and the eternal rest he offers, you will see, will one day eclipse any pain or discomfort you may face here and now. If you are a disciple of Jesus, if you are a follower of Jesus, be comforted. Uh, Be comforted knowing that Jesus has everything in hand. Live now in the struggles of life with that joy of heaven in the front of your mind. Make sure your expectations are the expectations Jesus teaches us to have of himself. That expectation of salvation and eternal rest. And be confident that well, he is who he says he is. He is the true son of God, the king come to rescue his people. He is where true and lasting rest can be found. Let's praise God for this now as we pray. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we praise you. We praise you and we thank you for the rest that you provide. We praise you for your sacrifice, that in your death on the cross you have paid the price for sin and provided a way for those who come to you to be saved, to be forgiven. And that because you have been raised to life again and you will return one day, we know that we have the joy of heaven to look forward to, the, the rest for our souls, the eternal rest, which is your promise to us. We praise you for this, Lord. Help us to be uh, reminded of these Wonderful truths in times that we doubt, when we do suffer hard times or we doubt your goodness or we wonder whether you are there. Help us to remember what it is you have promised us. Help us to be sure of it. And help us to be thankful and living day by day lives which demonstrate how thankful we are for all of your goodness to us and for the rest which you provide. We pray all of these things, Lord, that you might be glorified, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.